fall into the theology bit. everyone welcome back to the theology pit this is theology out of pittsburgh unlike a bottomless pit where you could die of dehydration and then perhaps starvation if you didn't die of that but hey here in the theology pit we want to keep you fed because in a theological pit you are being fed mentally your mind is growing you can feel your mind growing you can you can feel it uh you're getting smarter and being able to think through these things So we've been having a great time here with um, talking about salvation, talking about the history of salvation. Um, I've been having a really good time doing it. And I've noticed that whenever I am talking about um, salvation and when we're talking specifically about the atonement and the application of the atonement, how that, what Christ did gets applied to us? What does it mean that he died for us or for our sins or like what is all encompassing? And as the church, how do we understand that? How do we look to that? And how do we say, okay, you know what? Um, This is the easiest way to explain it. And why hasn't it been explained that way through all of history? And we've been going through this historical understanding. Now, I know in the last few podcasts, it feels like I've sort of gotten away with it talking about original sin a couple weeks ago, talking about free will last week. But these are very important to understand because of the implications that they have. Um, When we first started out, we were talking about the worldview and the philosophy of the culture and what was happening. And by doing so, we could then say, okay, here's, here's their mind. Here is what they are thinking, and this is going to help them interpret scripture and interpret their experiences and and interpret what Christ did and what exactly that means. And I think that that is extremely important because when that happens to us, then we get to a point where we're just like, okay, I have it figured out now. And we have this benefit of looking back over 2000 years and saying, you know what? All right. I think that we got it. I think that we have it, but that's not necessarily always the case. As we've seen, we may have it incompletely. Paul says it's as though we are looking through a mirror dimly and we're going to continue to look through this dim mirror here in this edition, part seven of salvation in the theology pit. All right, so um, what I want to do is I want to kind of refresh us um, on a few different things, and then we're going to move on. Um, what what we I want to do in this theology pit, this may be a little more fun for people. It's not going to be focusing so much um, at like a microscope. I'm going to be pulling back and saying maybe we need a, a bigger picture of what's going on. So um, there's really six different theories of the atonement totally that I want to go through. Some of them I'm going to spend more time on than others, uh, but um, I, I'm not going to do that like, I don't know how to explain. I'm not going to be going like five miles an hour for this theology pit. We're going to do a big flyover 
And I'm going to recap on the recapitulation theory, the ransom to Satan theory. And then I'm going to talk about the satisfaction theory, the moral example theory, the governmental theory, and then the penal substitution theory. Okay. So as you remember, um, the recapitulation view of the atonement was one of the very first ones. Okay. It was one of the questions of, you know, what does it mean? Okay. What does it mean that Christ came and did what he did? How does that work for us. And people were looking at, you know, their, their new Testament, you know, they're looking at their scriptures and they're talking about this stuff and they're pulling it out and they're saying, you know what? I think that what Christ did was that he had to live this perfect life that Adam couldn't live. Okay. He had to recapitulate all the stages of human life, birth, infancy, childhood, adolescence, manhood, and even death. Okay, he even had to go through death. But this is something that I found interesting about this view is that technically Adam was not born in the same way that 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 we are born. He was created. He was created and you get um, theorize on what age he was created at. Some people said he was created as an adult. Some people hmm, yawning again. Oh my God. Am I finding myself this boring? No. Um, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, but you know, he's, you know, created maybe 30, maybe he's created in his twenties. Maybe he's created in his teens. Um, wherever he was created, he was not created as a little baby. And so how, if Christ is to be our second Adam, according to the recapitulation view, and he had to do everything perfectly that Adam couldn't do, why didn't he just show up on the scene one day? Why do we have such an emphasis on his birth? You know, on, on you know, his childhood, what it was like for him growing up. Did he have to grow up in a Jewish culture, in a Jewish family? Um, these are questions that just aren't answered at all with this view, but we, I think we can kind of theorize on them. For example, Adam may not have been a baby, but everybody else has. So Jesus to completely represent all of humanity did have to live through, um, all those different, uh, uh, points in life. Okay. All those different stages, so to speak. And the way that they would say he's the second Adam is because Adam had a biological, has God as his biological father and Christ had God as his biological father. Adam disobeyed God's will in the garden. Christ submitted to God's will in a garden. Adam, he failed by eating from the fruit of the tree. Christ gained victory by hanging on the wood of a tree. Okay, so... They look at Christ's life not only as what has been done for us, but also as an example of this is how we are to live. This is how we are to do it. This is how we are to be sanctified. Okay. They're not really breaking stuff up between sanctification and justification like like Protestants do. And really Protestants are the only ones that are truly doing this. Um, the Eastern Orthodox view and the Roman Catholic view, they don't separate justification and sanctification. If you hear them talk 
And you were to ask a Roman Catholic, are you justified in, in the way that you would word it? Are you saved? Past tense, they would say, no, of course not. I'm being saved. I'm in that process. So really, it's only when you get into Protestantism that you start looking at this separation between justification and sanctification. And then within Protestantism, you can take it one step further in that there are some within Protestantism that won't separate sanctification and justification in the fact of their completeness. They would say, just as, okay, a, a Protestant would say that you are justified, that that's done. That part of salvation is completely done. It's over with. But a Roman Catholic would say, no, it's ongoing. Somebody that was part of a holiness movement or a, a Wesleyan movement would say um, that, no, your sanctification is not an ongoing thing. You have been sanctified, past tense. It's taken care of. Where a Protestant in, let's, let's just for argument's sake, say the, the reform tradition or just the Protestant tradition outside of that. And we'll, we'll, we'll just, it's more along the lines of a restorationist, but I wouldn't put them in that camp. They're kind of in their own uh, category, in my opinion. Um, they would say, no, 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 we are being sanctified and we will be glorified. Everyone agrees that glorification is at the end and we have not achieved it. Glorification is whenever you are resurrected. It's in your resurrected body. It's not that you just came back to life. You have to remember when people came back to life in the Bible, either Old Testament or New Testament, when they were brought back to life, they were not resurrected. Okay. Jesus did not resurrect Lazarus. He reanimated Lazarus. There's a, a particular distinction that we have to be aware of there because if we use the word resurrection synonymously for anybody that has come back from the dead, then if we have people today whose hearts have stopped and they are clinically dead, they are technically dead, and then they are brought back to life, we wouldn't use the word resurrection. We wouldn't say, oh, the doctors resurrected them. We would just say, no, they just brought them back to life. And, and we would technically use the term of reanimation in this aspect. So we have to kind of separate these two uh, ideas of resurrection and, and reanimation. But we're very, very, very tied into this idea of resurrection being part of glorification, part of the finality of it. And then really that goes back. I mean, that's Old Testament. That's oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job, um, you know, talks about uh, that, like this resurrection, you know, aspect of it that, and, and, and here's something else that's interesting. An intermediate period is not discussed so much prior to the New Testament. Old Testament understanding, Jewish understanding is a type of, of sleep. We can call it like soul sleep. Some um, uh, Christian traditions, I would say maybe on the, on the, on the fringes there, um, you know, the, um, I believe the Seventh-day Adventists hold to a type of, of soul sleep. Okay. It's like when you die, you know nothing, you think nothing, you're unaware of anything. The next conscious thought that you have is your resurrected body, you waking up with it. Um, and you know, you're, you're at the end times. Um, there's a total, uh, glorification has taken place. You're, you're already there. Uh, I think that there's uh, problems with that view, but in the old Testament, going back to the story of Lazarus, for example, um, 
Lazarus's sister said, uh, you know, Jesus said, don't worry, you know, you're going to see him again. And she says, yes, my Lord, I know at the resurrection, I will see him again because they don't have this understanding of an intermediate position. So when talking to them and using certain languages, they wouldn't say that what Jesus did was resurrecting Lazarus. They would say he was reanimating because they had this different understanding of, of what resurrection was. Um, and it comes, it, it's sort of the same type of thing when you're discussing salvation and you're talking about justification and sanctification. Um, not every Christian tradition holds to the same understanding and the same view. And a lot of times it's their, it's their worldview, it's their theology, and it's their philosophy that's driving this. So when we look at like the recapitulation view of the atonement and what they're focusing on and the fact that they have this understanding that everything, you know, that is spiritual is good and, you know, the physical is what needs to be taken care of. Well, yes, then Jesus had to do everything physically, redo it all, be that perfect you know, um, person, that perfect man, that perfect representation. And there's strength and weaknesses with that. And I think we went over those enough, um, in the earlier, uh, podcasts. Um, uh, then the next one that came in, I don't want to say next one because it's almost at the same time period. Okay. It's almost at the same time. And it's this ransom to Satan view. Now the ransom to Satan view we went over was that Jesus had to pay a penalty for the actions of mankind, to redeem mankind, to buy mankind back, to, you know, pay for their sins and to make them, make mankind his. Um, this puts a lot of emphasis on the death on the cross, okay, the, and what that meant, but the emphasis was wrong on who it was meant to that satisfaction had to be made, payment had to be made, but not to Satan. To God, yes. Not to Satan. So you have these two views going on at the same time. And the reason is, is because scripture talks about both of those things happening. I mean, it, it puts this, these emphases on both of these views and what's going on. Now, whenever we get to the understanding that in order to represent mankind... Christ had to be fully human. And what that meant, human beings have a reasonable mind, a reasonable soul, and a reasonable body. Okay, if you're a, a trichotomist or a dichotomist, body, um, soul, slash, spirit, however, however you want to, whatever your constitution of man is, whatever you believe that man is made up of, of material and immaterial, Jesus had to be all of that. And so the question came to be, well, if he necessarily had to be all of that, then that means that there must be something inherently wrong with all of that. And this is where you get to this discussion on free will and original sin and what it affects, how it affects us and, you know, all these sorts of things. And, you know, the importance of Jesus getting his, his manhood from, from Mary um, and his Godhood from God and that, you know, he is truly God and he is truly man and there is no intermingling of the two substances, the hypostatic union that underneath the substance. Um, but it says that Jesus refused to access that. Okay. So with him refusing to access that, but being yeah, us in every way, 
people really started saying then there must have been some type of importance to that. If that's emphasized in scripture, if that's emphasized in the understandings that the church has had and that we have, that our minds are just as corrupt as our bodies. And the argument on whether or not we sin because we're sinners or we're sinners because we sin. One side, one is that, and and you always have to think about where the action is located, okay? If the action of somebody being a sinner is because they sin, then the action is located within them by themselves. If they are sinners because, well, let me say that again here. Make sure I didn't just confuse my confuse myself. I was going a little fast. If somebody is a sinner because they have committed a sin and they have earned their own sinfulness, then they are responsible individually for their own sinfulness, okay? And they have taken that on, and that's just affecting them and... If the mind is preserved by God's grace somehow, then honestly, Jesus didn't need to have a reasonable mind or reasonable immaterial part. The material is what needs saving because of the resurrection, because looking forward to that glorification. But if somebody, just by their very nature of them being a human being, that that's why they sin, and there's nothing that they can do about it. They can't even think properly on it. They can't go after God. They can't search for godly things. Well, then it's necessary for Christ to be everything that we are. So when we look at the ransom of Satan view and the recapitulation view, don't think of it as an either or at the time. It's a both and. People may not have been able to articulate it in the way that we would, but we can kind of see where this is coming from. Now we mix in this whole thing of free will and we mix in this whole thing of original sin and we can now move on to the next view that came about. Okay. And it's called the satisfaction theory or the satisfaction view of the atonement. And this stands largely on the sacramental system. Okay. And what the sacraments are, it comes from the um, Latin, I believe, sacramentum, uh, the Greek mysterion, uh, where we get the word mystery from. And what we are doing in that is that there's a mystery that is happening, okay, that God's grace is somehow getting applied to us, okay, because we need to be saved. Now, let me let me back up just a little bit. I kind of jumped ahead of myself here. Let me give you a definition of what we mean by the satisfaction view of the atonement, okay? And this is roughly the definition of it. That man's sinfulness has wounded God's honor, okay? God, out of necessity has restored his honor by sending Christ as both God and man. Okay, Christ restored God's honor and gained a reward that he did not need. Okay, because he has every Jesus has everything. He is he wears the crown. He sits on the throne. He uh, everything. Any 
any merit that he had earned through what he was doing really is of no use to him. So he can freely give it out. And it's, it's, it's a limitless merit because his sacrifice was, was completely limitless. There's nothing else that could have possibly been like it in the entire universe, him being fully God and fully man. It can be fully applied to mankind because mankind was represented in this. And it is, it is, uh, is the word extemporaneous, the, the best word for it, extemporaneously apl- uh, uh, applied that it, what he did in storing these merits up is it's sufficient for any number of people, any number of sin, any number of anything. Okay. And this reward that he has, all of this, all of this, let's think of them as like treasures, these, these merits, okay? All of this stuff Jesus has can then, in the form of grace, be given to mankind, okay? Anselm helped think this up in the, uh, the, the 11th century. Yeah, late... 11th century, early 12th century. Okay. Anselm um, wrote a book called uh, Curdeus Homo, uh, which means why the God man. Whenever you had these councils talking about this stuff and discussing why, you know, that what Jesus was, you know, and what we are, you start thinking about those. Okay. Well, what's the relation to both of those? Why such an emphasis on what Christ is and then what relation, uh, the emphasis on what we are and then the relation between those two things, how do those fit together? And Anselm thought about that. And he said that, no, you know, what, what had to be, uh, what had to happen was he had to completely satisfy uh, God's wrath. He had to uh, reconcile us back to God. He had to fix what happened in the garden. He had to take care of all this stuff. Okay. It's, it's that Jesus did everything to reinstate, to make right, to make righteous, to make perfect the marred relationship between us and God. Okay, he became that mediator. And by dying on the cross, by doing everything perfectly, by dying on the cross, he then fixed the, uh, fixed the right word, satisfied God's offended honor. Okay. God was no longer offended, the offended party, no longer could be seen as unjust by not condemning all of mankind and destroying all of mankind because that's what mankind deserved. So by doing this, he gained all these merits. Now, the implication of this is that we as human beings have the possibility, the potential to earn merits, okay? But because of sin... We can't. There's nothing that we can do. The way that we can is by 
doing something that God has instructed through the church in order to merit God's favor. So our merit, all it can do, our efforts can then get this grace, these merits from God, his grace, and be administered to us. And once they are administered to us, this is called a gratia infusa, which means grace infused. It's grace that is given to us in this manner so that we may be able to continue receiving these, this grace, these merits. We can then use this little bit that we have and we can then earn more of God's grace and it can change us. If you've ever been to any of the, I want to say old fashioned arcades because new fashioned arcades now is basically anything that's on your phone or, you know, a PlayStation or a Wii or something like that. I slurped some coffee there. Sorry about that. And if you've ever gone to like maybe some of these old games where you can put a quarter in or a token or some type of change. And basically what it looks like is just a ramp that you're dropping it down. And there are all these other coins that are laying down there. And there's this mechanical um, thing pushing, uh, like barrier, like pushing up again. And it only pushed so far. So all of the coins, you know, look like they are just barely hanging over the edge. And this is like the payout edge. And you drop a coin at the right time in the right spot, and it lands there, and then this thing comes and pushes against it, which pushes against all the other coins, which then drops them down. If you can put it in the right place, and you do it with like a quarter, you might be able to get two quarters back. One quarter, three quarters, however many. Sometimes, some people have gone before you have, you know, stacked some on there, so you might get, if you're lucky, three quarters, four quarters, and you, you can keep doing this. Think of this type of um, merit in that way, that through this satisfaction view, which we come into, you know, the sacramental view, the first sacrament that you would receive would be baptism. So the church that does baptism, that Christ has has put in place, you know, um, Christ said, go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the first sacrament that we get as Christians at this time period, I'm not talking about, you know, um, if you're, if you're an Anabaptist or anything like that, I'm just talking about this time period when we're talking about the satisfaction view of the atonement, you then receive this baptism and you start receiving instruction. So now you have this grace that's been given to you. You have this ability to petition in a sense through your works, you're, you're, you're meriting more of God's favor, more of God's grace that God has already started you out with, already given you. So all glory goes to him, no glory to yourself, because if it was not for God, you wouldn't even be able to do this. So for after that, if your instructions, then you get another quarter, maybe a bigger quarter to maybe maybe it's 50 cent piece. I don't know to then drop in this machine here. And at confirmation, you drop it in there and you confirm that you believe everything that you've been taught. So 
by you believing, by you expressing this faith, by you then getting, getting this, this faith, this, um, this, this fides quae creditor that you're now using, this faith which you, you know, believe, okay, that you are expressing this. By doing that, you are then getting, think of it as another helping of God's grace, and it may be poured out a little bit more. Now you're ready for communion. And communion within the host, you are eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ. Now, in the next podcast, we are going to really dive into the sacramental view, and we are going to talk a lot about why there's such a big deal made over is it literally the body and blood of Christ? Is it literally, are we literally drinking blood and eating flesh, gnawing on flesh, or is it symbolic? And there's a big reason for that. So don't think that I'm, you know, just glossing over that. Um, I, I don't want you to think I'm skipping over it. There's, there's one other thing before I even got this podcast that I wanted to talk about that maybe some people would call me out on, maybe they wouldn't, but I'm going to get to it later. And that has to do with like, you know, predestination and election, but that's not going to be a, a big issue until uh, we get a little bit later on. So I'm kind of holding back on that. And this is going to be the same way. I'm not going to dive into exactly what all this stuff means. I'm just giving us a flyover. So when we talk about the satisfaction view of the atonement and the sacramental system, the sacramental view, I just want you to understand that by partaking of the body and blood of Christ, we are getting the ability to merit God's favor, to do these works. And these merits are not ours because we didn't have any to start with. They're the merits that Christ has uh, stored up, that he has saved because he didn't, he didn't need to use any of them. Okay. He, you know, was already like Mary, full of grace. He is, he is grace. He's being itself. He is fully God. He does not need to use any of these merits in order to continue on in life. Any merits that he earned from any of the works that he did, he never had to use to get more. If you can understand what I'm saying here, it's as though he's at the machine and he is the one who had this empty machine there and just completely filled it up. And then you walked up and he gave you that one next quarter. That's like when you're watching the, um, uh, the Oceans movie. I think it's Oceans 13, where they feel really bad for the inspector to get him to you know, fail the, the, the casino. And they just had to do all these terrible things to him. And they said, okay, we're going to have him like, win $11 million in a, in a slot machine you know, because of everything we put him – we feel bad about that. So what they did is they waited for him in the airport and, um, Brad Pitt's character, Rusty drops, you know, like five of the coins in there, the $1 tokens and leaves one and then says, I got to get my flight or whatever. And tells the guy, Hey, I hear this one's been hit and give it a try and just leaves it there. And the guy's like, yeah, why not? And he drops it in and boom, he gets $11 million right there. He wins. He can quit his job. He can, he's retiring the rest of his life. He's perfect. Christ kind of did that. Christ set everything up here. And left that one coin and said, hey, go ahead and do it. And we dropped that coin in, you know, and we said, yeah, why not? And boom, we, we dropped it. Actually, somebody helped us drop it in there. 
And by helping us drop it in there and by doing that, it then pushed forward all this merit that wasn't ours to begin with. It was Christ, and we get that. And then we can keep popping it in and popping it in, and it's paying out every time. Not as much as it did when Christ put it all in, because Christ had it all to dump in there. But it's enough to keep us on our way. And the more that we do this, the bigger that it's getting, and it's and it's allowing us to get more and more uh, grace. And by us getting more and more of this grace, we are becoming more and more conformed to the image of God. Okay. We, through the example, through what's going, we're, we're learning the machine better. We're learning the, the, the game better, so to speak. We know, you know, if we do more deeds from these merits that we're getting, put in more quarters in different places and stuff. It's moving things up. It's pushing it up. We're able to abundantly keep doing this. So that in a nutshell is sort of how the satisfaction view is, is working, how it's, it's being applied to us. It's this like God, God did everything and he is helping us in this, in this way, in this sense. Okay. So he's sort of thinking about this, you know, we, we can think about it this way, you know, in, in, I I hope that's a good visual for, for that understanding. Now us being conformed into the likeness of Christ and the way that he behaved. And that's the way that we should behave and we should do this. Um, sometimes people just take that aspect of it and run with it. And this is called the moral example view. We're going to move away from the satisfaction view, okay, away from this uh, sacramental understanding, and we're going to move towards something called the moral example view. Now, the moral example view has never been fully held by the church, okay? The church universal has entertained it, entertained this, this thought, it's always plagued the church. It still does to today, you know, but it was never fully adopted. But I think we need to be aware of it because around the same time that Anselm was talking about this, a man by the name of Abelard was talking about the moral example view. And he held to it and, and liberals today hold to this view. And this is the belief of the moral example view that Christ came to show people how to live so that they would turn to him in love. His death was not required and has no atoning value. It serves only as a moral example for people to follow. Now, the universalist Unitarian churches, they, they will hold to this. Um, and one of the arguments that they would have against the satisfaction view could be stated as this. Why would God require a sacrifice or require any, any type of contrition or anything in order to forgive when he asks us to basically, to baselessly forgive, turning the other cheek, that sort of thing. It's not, it's not fair. It's, and it's kind of odd that God would say, you need to forgive people without them 
doing anything to ask for that forgiveness, totally baselessly. But I, on the other hand, I need something in order to forgive you. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. So with this moral example view that they're talking about, they're, again, looking at what somebody is saying And they are trying to formulate this also in that it doesn't seem right to make people out of fear, force them to love you at, at, you know, the end of a gun to force them to love you. If they don't love you, if they don't accept you, you're then going to, you know, kill them, throw them into a lake of fire. Yeah, that sort of thing. They find out to be just ridiculous. God's not like that. God doesn't do that, okay? Jesus wanted to show what perfect love was and what perfect obedience was. And that's why he died on the cross. God didn't need to be satisfied, okay? God does not need a sacrifice in order to forgive, Okay, the greatest virtue is someone who forgives without any basis except love. You just have to be pretty much a good person. Think of it that way. Man needs to recognize God's love for him and then and then turn to him. Okay. The cross demonstrates this love more than anything else. Now, when I say that this view is held by liberals, I don't mean in a political sense. I just mean that this is a very liberal view to hold because it's extremely prevalent in our society today. Watch movies, watch TV shows, somebody dies and they say, you know, everybody in there, well, you know, he's in heaven now, but what's the reason why he's in heaven or that person's in heaven? Well, they always say, well, because they were a good person. Okay. The behavior, the orthopraxy, the, the right practice that's what happens in order for you to merit, you know, God's favor, merit, you know, salvation, earn salvation in this sense. Um, and you can see where um, the views we talked about earlier between Augustine and, and Pelagius, how even though, you know, Pelagius was condemned in the sixth century, here we are now in the... 11th and 12th century. And yet these ideas are creeping back in without being called, you know, what they are. Um, they're just being adopted. And so they would just say, as long as you're a good person, then you will go to heaven because Jesus was a good person. And the atonement then completely becomes subjective on 
basically what you do. There is no objectivity to it. So what we are to do is we are to look at Christ and he has this really good moral influence on us where Adam had a very bad moral influence on us. So again, taking a recapitulation view, but looking at it not as original sin, but as, you know, and a bad example that we learned from our parents. And now we can stop learning from them and we can actually look to Christ and say, look, there he is. Behold the man Christ. Look at the good that he did. And because of that, we say, you know what? People actually can be good. And our hearts are softened in that. And then we turn to God in love and not out of fear or obligation or responsibility or anything like that. So you can see where the moral view would be palatable, where people would look at it and say, yeah, okay, I, I get that. I totally get it. You know, I'm not held responsible for something I didn't do. And I can just do my best because Christ did his best. And that's, you know, I would say that's it in a nutshell. Hopefully I, I explained that well. And a lot of people would agree to that because honestly, there's really no responsibility, true responsibility on themselves. Um, they're not going to be, you know, beating themselves with rocks or sticks or anything in order to atone for their own sin or anything like that, because sin really isn't that serious. God doesn't take it that seriously. And since he doesn't take it that seriously, because he just wants us to turn to him and just show what obedience looks like, that's what we do in this, this moral example view. So... We can relax more and we can just kind of take it easy. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't, I don't want it to sound like it, it creates complete lethargy because you know, people would look at it and, you know, carry your own cross and, and Christ's death and life are, are motivating factors in that. But um, it's, it's incomplete. I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, Jesus is a very good moral example. Okay. I'm, I'm not saying that he's not. But again, like the other views, if you just have that, then your view is incomplete. And this is a very incomplete view because it pretty much strips out the point of the cross in, in a redemptive way. When, when you just boil it down to, well, actually the resurrection doesn't matter, that sort of thing, you know, um, Unitarian Universalist churches will hold to this. Um, it's interesting to listen to the uh, atheist um, uh, Christopher Hitchens school a bishop in the Unitarian Universalist church on what Christianity is. And he, of course, was not a Christian. And um, they said to him, the, the bishop, she said to him, you know, well, Jesus was just a good example. You know, his, his resurrection really wasn't like that important. You know, death on the cross wasn't that important. And he said, uh, no, no, you have it wrong. Um, this is what Christianity is. And he, you know, explained the gospel. He explained Christianity to her and said, I've debated a lot of Christians. I know what Christianity is. And if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian flat out on her radio show chastised her for saying this thing, but she was holding to a moral example view. 
more than any any of the other views. Now, the next view that I want to talk about is called the vicarious substitutionary view. It would be the next one uh, that came. And this is the view um, that the atonement, okay, is made on the cross when Christ vicariously bore the exact penalty, okay, the exact penalty of his people, thereby placating the wrath of God and satisfying his righteousness, okay? This is the one that's held to by... um, the Protestants and Reformed Protestants, okay? Not all Protestants hold to this view. Martin Luther, John Calvin, these would be your um, your Lutherans, your Presbyterians, more than likely your Anglicans, um, depending on if they're Episcopalian or not. Um, and, and that can you know vary in that way. Um, Reformed, Baptist, this is a very Reformed view, okay? And what this is saying is that because of original sin, all right, our Adam's sinfulness was imputed to mankind. Our sinfulness is then imputed to Jesus on the cross. And then his righteousness is imputed to us. Okay, so when man's sin is put on Christ, it is given to him. It is Jesus's. It is his sin. He becomes sin itself on the cross and dies. That sacrifice that is offered to God is acceptable because of the person and work of Christ and because of what he is and who he is. And the forgiveness can then be offered. I've stated this before, I think in the first podcast, this is a lot of what I I went over there, that we are justified by God's grace for Christ's sake through faith. And this is where that's that's coming from, this this, um, vicarious view. Okay. Now... The way some of some of the things that are that are occurring when this is happening, okay. Uh, propitiation is a word that you're going to hear in in this view, and that's the act whereby God's righteous wrath is satisfied by the atonement of Christ. Okay, because sin has to be punished. Anything connected to sin has to be punished. What Christ did by dying on the cross satisfied that, took care of that. Okay. The imputation was the transferal of sin of man, of the sin of man to Christ while Christ was on the cross. Okay. And the word redemption, you know, redeemed, literally to be purchased. Scriptural teaching that God paid a price for man's salvation, redeeming us from sin. Okay. The God who bought us. All right. So notice what you're getting here is that you're getting this understanding of the recapitulation view, okay, that Christ had to be man in order for this to happen, in order for this transaction to take place. Not a lot of emphasis on his life, on his birth and life and his living out the perfect life. And I I think as Protestants, we need to focus on that a little bit more, but, you know, but it's present that Jesus had to be everything that we are, 
so we can become everything that he is. Okay, and I'm talking glorification there. That the understanding of the ransom from the ransom to Satan view is held to, but not that it's ransom to Satan, that it's ransom to God. That's that Jesus had to pay a ransom for us on our behalf. And that this righteousness is then applied to us. So you have the understanding of the satisfaction view of the atonement. The difference being here is that it's a forensic declaration. This imputation, it's, it's, it's that God says that you are righteous and therefore you are. He does not give you faith in order to make you savable or to save you. We do receive faith, the fides qua creditor, faith by which we believe. It's, it's faith that God gives us so that we can believe, but it's not that faith that's given us that actually justifies us. Again, I said it earlier, think about where the action is taking place. If it's taking place in God, by him declaring us righteous, by him saying it, is different than if the action takes place in us where something is put in us. And then that is what saves us. I know, I know it may, may sound like semantics, may sound like splitting hairs, but there are really big implications on this. God does not pour something because, okay, if we say that, you know, by God giving us this faith in order for us to believe, and therefore then we believe because of this faith, this is no different than a satisfaction or a, a, a gratia infusa, the, the, the grace of God being infused which, within us, which changes us and then makes us savable. It still keeps us in the that we are being justified. Okay. It's that it's, it's, it's an ongoing thing rather than being sanctified. We do view it, or I, I should say some Protestants that would hold to a gratia infusa, that you know, grace is infused in you, but it goes into the category of sanctification to help you live your life, to help you continue on that merit game in, in that sense. But when it comes to justification, this is where the, the key differences are, are coming in on this. And I, I want this to be really, really clear. So we get a good understanding between the substitutionary view and the satisfaction view. Okay. That is taking it one step further that Jesus was a vicarious substitution he took on the penalty that we deserved. He got all the wrath that we should have taken in order for the satisfaction to be maintained. And then because of that, God declares you to be righteous and therefore you are. And then you are receiving at the same, almost at the same time, it's hard to say. And then you are receiving this grace so that you have the ability then to believe. So you're receiving the fides qua creditor faith by which it is believed. And you are acting out and expressing the fides qua creditor, the faith, which you believe the confession that you make. So that's the difference is where the action is taking place. Substitutionary view, the action is taking place in God the satisfaction view, the action is taking place in man, in the heart of man, however you want to say it. And this is why in the first podcast, I was jumping up and down about this a lot, you know, and, and saying that even by saying I'm saved because I asked Jesus into my heart, 
is a meritous work. It's it's the this merit merit that God has given you playing that coin game, you know, doing doing that sort of thing, and that's different than. God just declaring that all that change that's in that corn game is yours and you never had to play. Okay, he's just saying everything here, this is yours. It's that it's as though you did everything perfectly. You have been righteous. It's bad English, but that's what it means. That you did everything completely perfect as though it was expected. What Christ did is given to you because Christ wants it that way. And it is for Christ's sake that you are justified, that you are saved. It is because of him. You owe it all to him. Nothing you could do. Okay. And then it, it makes you feel, no, I have to, it's even, you know, I know I, I feel that I want to do something. I want to, I have to, but if you had no ability to do it, God has to come in and do everything. That's the implication of the original sin and, and the free will understanding and the talk that we had in the last couple of weeks and why that was such a big deal when we get to this. Now, I'll be spending a lot of time on this theory also, you know, in, in later podcasts. Each podcast will be coming up on salvation. I'm probably going to be spending the entire podcast on one of these views. Right now, I'm just trying to give you this flyover and get you to, you know, get your hand or get your mind around all these different views before we go into them deeper and we talk about the um, uh, scripture passages and where we're getting this stuff from and who's holding to this and that sort of thing. So after this vicarious substitutionary view, we have the governmental view that, that came about. Governmental view came about a little bit later. Um, it came about, or you know, I should put a timeline on the uh, substitutionary view. This is, um, you know, what Martin Luther uh, was really looking at and coming up with, and this has a lot to do with justification. So you're looking at the time of Martin Luther. You're looking 16th century, early to mid 16th century. Okay, the um, governmental view uh, moves into the late 16th century, early 17th century. Okay, so it's coming along a, a little bit after it. It's looking at this and it's it's thinking about this this understanding and what the governmental view of the atonement is, the governmental theory, is that Christ's death was a nominal substitute for the penalty of the sin of man. Okay, now what we mean by nominal is that it was not an exact payment. It was a payment that was good enough. And why is that such a big deal? Well, before I really get into the differences between the governmental view and the substitutionary view, we're going to be doing a podcast on the concept of predestination and election. And that really, really makes a difference here because if people were predestined to be saved, the ones who are saved, the ones who are going to heaven were known by God and they were predestined, then Christ's death necessarily could be exact. Okay. Not, not one more thing was needed. If though by election and predestination, we don't mean individuals, but we mean anybody who will be found in Christ, who believes in Christ, that the atonement applies to them. Even though God may know that number, 
and this is, I mean, we might get into some open theism where God, it's, it's, you know, that they say God doesn't know the future. And there are lots of problems with that. If we do a podcast series on theology proper, you know, on the, the study of God and what God is and the, the nature of God and uh, what, what um, constitutes a God, um, you know, what, what ap- attributes God has, communicable and incommunicable, all that stuff, we will get into open theism. And it's a theory that uh, loosely states or exactly states that God does not know the future. Okay. He's just like the best chess player in the world. He sees all the pieces and, you know, he works really well. But anyways, um, my, my point is that if God says, I am going to say, and this goes down to, um, you know, uh, the, the decrees of, of God, um, eternal decree. Well, and that's something else that we'll have to get into when we talk about predestination and election, the, the decrees that God makes. And you'll learn lots of fun words like superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism and sublapsarianism. Um, and these are a lot of theory things, but the governmental view here is stating that it's a, a token sacrifice, okay? It is that Christ was good enough, and so you don't need to know the number of people. It doesn't have to be an exact penalty because it was enough in a governmental standpoint and enough to say anyone found in Christ, this covers them, this applies to them, okay? It is Christ's death is sufficient for all but efficient for only those who are found in Christ. Now, whether or not they were predestined, whether or not they were elected, whether or not they chose because of provenient grace that God balanced the scales, however they want to say, it doesn't matter that it was, it was a nominal substitute for the penalty of the sin of man. Okay. That this is what was required generally and it could have been, and it's it's not to say that it, it possibly could have been less. It, it could have been more. It could have been more than what was needed, more than what required, completely limitless because of how good God was or how good Christ was and that the Father completely accepted that. So God graciously accepts this and he is upholding his moral government. Okay, now this would be a view held by Arminians, and there's a difference between Calvinists and Arminians, and this is a, a split within the Protestant church. And if I ever do a podcast on the history of the Protestant churches and, and showing where the divisions were, what the divisions are, this is a this is a big one because it comes, you know, free will, original sin, application of the atonement, these sort of things. This is these all all of these things come together. Okay. Now the main points is that, you know, God, he could have relaxed his moral law and forgiven sinners. Okay. But then that, but then this would have caused a moral anarchy. Okay. So God chose to demonstrate his moral government by pushing, by punishing Christ for sin. And you can see that this is kind of pushing into the moral example understanding, but not necessarily. They really don't have anything to do with each other. But they do, in my mind, sort of run parallel. Okay. Now I think that great that Christ is a very good moral example. I'm not I'm not saying that, but it's 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 a point. Maybe it's a point that I shouldn't have brought up because I don't want that in your mind that they are associated. But I think it needs to be stated that it's it's a big you know understanding. Um, you know they would say that Christ could not have paid the exact penalty for sin. 
since he's not punished eternally in hell, which is what, you know, people who claim there to be an exact penalty actually would incur. If you were still dead in your sins, how long do you spend in hell? Well, you spend forever there. Well, Christ was only on the cross, maybe six hours, you know, dead for a couple of days. You know, I'm sure if like, you know, if you said to somebody, Hey, you know, you're going to go to hell and pay for your sins. Um, you know, it's going to be a million years. When that million years are done, you're like, phew, okay, I'm glad that's over with. But for everyone to spend all eternity in hell for their sins, are you saying that each sin is worth eternity in hell and, and one sin isn't greater than the other sin? Okay. So you can't go on saying that, you know, if Christ completely paid for all the sins of man, Okay, then all people are forgiven and will go to heaven. Okay, God would have no right to demand faith and obedience since all are objectively forgiven, right? Christ died for the whole world. If you say he died for the whole world, then why does anybody go to hell? Why isn't it just applied to them? Okay, these are the arguments that, that they would make and that they would state. And, you know, I think that they are good arguments to think about. And when we get in deeper into Arminianism and we talk more about the governmental view and, and you know, what that is and why, you know, we can um, actually look at this. It makes more logical sense for Christ to have died and make it, make it possible for you to be saved by the work that's God, God's doing it's synergistic. It's you and God working together, but you are, as scripture would say, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay. They, they're coming at this to put more responsibility onto man and, and say mankind is still somewhat responsible for his behavior. Okay. Because if it's all on God, well then if somebody sins, you can't blame them. You know, you can't blame them for what they're doing. If somebody, if somebody doesn't choose, you, you then have to say, well, God's sending them to hell. It's not predestination. That's double predestination. And we'll talk more about that also when we talk, do our predestination and election podcast. But they would have, they would take issue with a lot of this stuff and just say, no, the implications of what you're saying is not, the God that I see in scriptures. All right. That's, that's what the governmental view is, is ultimately saying. It's saying that God's moral law is more important and that his idea of morality is not alien or foreign to our idea of morality. Like what we consider good, God would consider good also, you know, I mean, what we consider righteous, God would consider righteous. It's not like, you know, it's the complete opposite of what good and bad is. It's not like it's, you know, uh, backwards. We, we die, we get to heaven. We find out that, you know, uh, some of the things that God thinks are really, really good. We think are really, really terrible. It's not like that. We are made in his image. So we have a, a understanding. We have certain communicable attributes, um, empathy, reason, uh, logic. These are attributes, righteousness, justice. All these things become, you know, totally totally reasonable. So I'm going to end the podcast here and just let you know that 
you know, next the next couple weeks, we're probably going to really get into the satisfaction view. I think that it has more facets to it to understand um, than a lot of the other ones. And I don't know how much time we're going to spend in it, but um, because of what it's doing and what it's setting up is why we get the response and the mentality of the vicarious view and the governmental view. Probably not going to spend a lot of time in the moral view. Um, the moral view pretty much is what it is that Jesus was, you know, just a, a really great guy. He was, you know, God, he died for us to give us that example. Um, this, as you can probably feel, and, and when you think about it, it's really going back to Stoic philosophy that. Um, you know, that we need to change our minds, you know, we need to become more logical. Um, we need to become the, the, you know, the, the logical man, the reasonable man, that sort of thing. And then it flows into that Gnosticism where our mind is the thing that we need to change. And then from there, it moves into that, that Manichaeanism that, um, you know, Augustine, uh, held to before he, you know, became a Christian that we need to learn in order to control our bodies so that we don't sin. And then it's picking up on Pelagius saying, well, original sin does not affect us because of God's grace, this general grace, not this saving grace, but this general grace of balancing the scales because God, you know, we have, we have a spirit and spirit is good. Physical is evil, you know, but the spirit has had a bad influence on us. And so we need to then adopt that. So you, you see this, this line of thought continuing, um, through history and then coming to this moral example understanding that yes, the physical needs to be beaten in the submission by our minds. And that's why we're getting this moral example thing, because look at what Christ did with the help of God. Christ was able to, you know, please God. And he then gives us this example. We can look to him and, you know, we can say, wow, wow, he, he, God, thank you so much for giving us this example. Thank you so much for the life and death of Christ. We know what it means to be true Christians and we're going to live that way. And we love you. Thank you for that. And they turn the to God totally out of love. Weaknesses of this view, though, is that it undermines the seriousness of sin. It says that God does not take sin seriously at all. Okay, it, it elevates God's love at the expense of his righteousness. Now, God is complete. He's no more just and he's no more righteous than he is loving. Okay, God is all in all. God is, is complete. He's immutable. He is beyond the ability to change. Okay, everything is perfect in him. Um. It disregards all the imagery of a necessary sacrifice. Now, when we start talking about the satisfaction view of the atonement, we are going to have to talk about what sacrifices were in the Old Testament. Um, Hebrews in the New Testament really, really 
sticks that to it. And we need to discuss that too, because this imagery of what's going on and what Jesus had to do and why he had to die a certain way and the things that all happened and all this stuff. Okay. It's, it's, it's important for us to know. Okay. Now with the moral example view, that's all pointless. That, that it's you, why is that imagery there necessary? Why are there what we would call types and shadows? That's, you know, it doesn't need that. The Bible teaches that forgiveness is based upon punishment, not baseless benevolence. Okay. Um, even the healings that Christ did were not always, I'm not going to say he never did a benevolent healing, but I'm going to say that all the healings were done to point to the message that he was giving. Okay. And it also, this moral example view makes Christ's death to have no objective value whatsoever. It makes God guilty of the worst kind of child abuse ever. I mean, who wants to serve a God like that? Honestly, if, if the moral example view is it, listen, you didn't have to like beat him so bad and have him hanging on a cross and dying a horrible, the crucifixion is a horrible, horrible death. It's, it's absolutely terrible. If you've ever looked into the medical aspects of a crucifixion and the crucifixion of Christ, and then you look into the scourging, I mean, you know, if, if you need a Mel Gibson's uh, movie, Passion of the Christ does a pretty good job of, um, of showing a lot of you know, what was going on. But for further understanding, look at the medical aspects of, of what's happening and it increases, um, that movie even more. But honestly, who wants to serve a God like that, that his only son, he abuses in such a way, you know, just to be able to show that, you know, he wants you to love him. Uh, it's, 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 it's kind of nonsensical when you sit there from a moral example view, it's almost unnecessary. It really is. And so if it's unnecessary, then the sacrifice is unnecessary. And that's why the moral example view is the hardest one to accept and why no one's really accepted it. It's, it has this type of influence of be a good person and you go to heaven and that's it. And just think good thoughts. And, you know, Jesus thought good thoughts and, you know, be like Jesus and Jesus is, is great. And like, you know, all the stuff you hear from, you know, liberals and, you know, other things, but it's not something that was taught in the church. And I'm just, I'm spending the end of this podcast. here just getting this out of the way. So we're not going to revisit the moral example view, but I want you to be aware of it because it does have influence. Um, as we saw, you know, going through this, this line of thought in the church. And it's not that, you know, it goes away because it's still prevalent. Even people that give lip service or believe the other views, one of the other views, this is still prevalent because of man's sinfulness. And we see this line of thought all through history. It may take a different name, but it's still the same type of, th of thought. It's still the same type of thing. Thank you very much for listening to The Theology Pit. Again, my name is Samson Kovach. Uh, find me, samsonstick.com. If you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe through iTunes, uh, your RSS feed. Uh, tell your friends about it. Tell your family about it. Um, you pass this around. If, if you know, Find me on Facebook, The Theology Pit, and I post these you know, every, every week on there, um, please share them with other people. Let them know about this. I think it's good as Christians that we talk about this stuff. I think it's good as 
as Christians that we need to know how to explain this, no matter what background you come from or denomination you come from. In contrast, there's clarity, and we need to understand all the different views so we can better understand our own. So um, check us out online, visit us, send me an email, tell me what you like or what you don't like, and listen. keep listening to The Pit of Conception, too. Uh, I just really appreciate uh, everybody who's been listening. I really appreciate all the subscribers and I just appreciate what God is doing through me and doing for all of us. So I want to thank you and now it's time to close down the pit.